It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Look of defiance, Donald Trump's mugshot. Two, embrace the hate, said the Texas Longhorns. Three, death penalty by nitrogen inhalation in the state of Alabama. The death penalty should be about vengeance and honesty. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment, at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube, and follow along the Will Kane Podcast on X at Will Kane. The internet remains obsessed with they with Oprah Winfrey, with Jeff Bezos, with the government, with land developers. The Internet is on the search for a bad guy in the story of Maui. What I can tell you as someone who has been on the ground, who has spoken to people sifting through the rubble, who is in contact with individuals knocking on doors to notify next of kin, is that the story of Maui is absolutely chock full of good guys. An update on our GoFundMe. Help the people of Lahaina and West Maui. A GoFundMe that many of you listening right now have touched my heart and have contributed, have given back, have donated to helping the families of Maui. I'm committed to giving you an update as quickly as possible. Here's where we stand today. The fund is currently somewhere between $2.1 and $2.2 million dollars. I cannot believe that I'm saying those words. I cannot believe that's what you have done. Truly, when we embarked upon this in the first couple of days after this horrible tragedy, I didn't know where it would end up. I didn't know how many people we would be able to help, but I never imagined getting close to $2.2 million dollars. I feel somewhat safe, and I want to be very conservative every step of the way. I want to be very transparent, and I want to be very conservative in expectations and promises. But I feel fairly safe in saying that I think at a minimum what we're going to be able to accomplish is to identify at least 100 households, 100 families. We're currently in the process of vetting 100 in Lahaina who have lost everything. We're working through various employers and church groups to get those names, to get those email addresses, and to identify those families. They're going to to receive direct assistance to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars each from people like you. And that will be life-changing for them in the short term. I have been a part, I've been privileged over the last couple of weeks to have somehow fallen into a group of much more impressive individuals than me. Veterans, just problem solvers, philanthropists who are giving, identifying needs. And I have been privileged to have somehow been included and fallen into this group. And one day, perhaps not too far into the future, I'll be excited to tell you about 
this story. It's another story that may one day deserve a movie because what I have seen when it comes to Maui is good people. What I've seen is heroes. I've told you about the heroes there in West Maui, the community that steps up for one another, but what I've been touched by, what I've learned, is also the heroes that exist out there in the world. And perhaps at a greater per capita in America who have given and continue to give to help try to pick up this community out of the ashes, off the ground. Here's an update on what I know. I have gotten to know a pastor on Maui, not in West Maui, in Wailuku. His name is Pastor Sean. Pastor Sean is in touch with first responders, individuals who were in Lahaina that day, who worked, people who made mistakes. He's helping them because they, too, need help today. They have arrived at that point in their life when they look in the mirror and they realize the gravity of their mistake. He's knocking on doors and notifying next of kin. He, like others I've talked to, understand the scope of what's happening as people sift their rubble and not to gratuitously be gruesome, but find, for example, three left feet and understand what we found here is a family huddled together. The good news is that the numbers have come down from 800 to 1,000 missing down to, I believe, the latest estimate is 338 missing. It does defy a little bit of logic on both ends of the spectrum. The story is so hard to understand. When it came back at 800 to 1,000, I said to you, and I said on television, Lahaina is only a town of 13,000 people. If there's 1,000 missing, I feel like, and I was all over that island, I would have run into more people begging and pleading and screaming into televisions and asking, where is my child? Where is my auntie? I would have run into that more frequently. It was always hard to wrap your head around and, you know, 8% of the population disappearing. On the other hand, what I've been told from those who are there in Lahaina, sifting through the ashes, is their bodies and the numbers will go up. And I'm sure that they will because the official death count right now is at 115. And with 338 still missing, we can't presume the best for all of those missing. Pastor Sean said to me, it's an island. Where are they? There's always a mystery on islands like Maui, how you get away with a crime. Where are you going to go? It's an island. It's possible that people didn't even know that they were missing. You end up on a list. There's 800,000 names. You don't see that list. It's not readily published. We know that. And you don't even know that you're one of the missing. And I think that's why in the last four to five days, we've seen the number through the FBI vetting process drop from 800 to 338. But... Here's what I've been told about the lack of outcry on the television. In part, there's perhaps a lot of guilt. If the story does end up, and we don't yet know how many of those missing are children, if the story does end up that a great many children were left home that day in Lahaina because school was called off, because the power went out early that morning, but parents still went away to work that day, if a great many children were left in Lahaina and are still among the missing, what we're dealing with, as I've been told, perhaps a lot of individual guilt. What we're also dealing with, and I've asked many people about this to try to understand, is a little bit of a cultural divide. Many Asian cultures populate the Hawaiian Islands, Filipino, Japanese, Tongan, Samoan, and many of those cultures embrace 
a culture and ideal of stoicism and patience and deference to authority. And it is perhaps the reaction to wait and hope and quietly wait for that knock on the door, hoping it's not Pastor Sean, hoping it is instead the missing. It's awful what happened that day in Lahaina. But as the internet searches for bad guys, I have to tell you, like most things in life, I think what we're looking at is cascading incompetence and misplaced priorities. Worse than a villain. You know, the internet's talked about things like a direct energy weapon. And why is everything on the street that is blue not burned? The internet's talked about the they looking for a massive land grab to run... Native Hawaiians or poor landowners out of Lahaina to turn into resorts. And what I would tell you is it just doesn't really satisfy logic. It just doesn't really add up. One, West Maui is not the tip of the development iceberg. That's moved south. That's moved to the other parts of the island. That's Wailea. You've got a Four Seasons. You've got the Grand Wailea. West Maui, Kanapali, and Kapalua were developments from the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Oh, Will, but Lahaina, that's prime real estate. That could be the next big development. The problem with that argument is twofold. One, you need a labor base to work all those hotels, to work that industry. You need affordable housing. Lahaina was the only real critical mass of affordable housing in West Maui. You can't just obliterate your labor pool and their access to work. Oh, I guess they could drive an hour and a half away to Kahului. But you're almost cutting off your nose to spite your face. It also presumes, by the way, that everything in Hawaii, tourism-wise, is always booming, and it's just simply not. I can tell you that as a fact. Restaurants, hotels, they're not constantly sold out. They're not constantly booming. Many of those developments, which are famous, Kapalua, have in fact in many ways been failures. One golf course allowed to go back to seed. Lahaina in and of itself doesn't sit on some gorgeous, beautiful beach like Kanapali or Wailea. It was a city with a harbor. With yes, some sand beaches and seawalls. And some expensive and some quaint homes that climbed up the hillside. Oh, I think we do have to be careful about what comes next. Trust me. I think something can be without nefarious intention and result in nefarious outcome. I don't want it lined with Gucci stars and stores and Louis Vuitton and five-star restaurants, bed and breakfasts, 30 rooms, but all $3,000 a night. I don't want that, just like no one does who lives in Lahaina. And we'll have to guard against that development. We'll have to ensure that Lahaina remains Lahaina. But what I'm telling you is nothing seems to add up to the they, to the bad guy, to the nefarious intent. Why were people blocked in town that day? Well, I've spoken to the people that are speaking to the people that blocked those roads. 80 mile an hour winds knocked down power poles all over town. Live wires laying across roads. You can argue, and we should, that power should have been cut off. Hawaiian Electric is as close as we get right now, seemingly, 
to a bad guy. Hawaiian Electric knew from 2018 that their power lines were at risk of high winds, starting wildfires. I don't know how well it was kept up under those power lines, but there were certainly dry grasses. And many of those power lines were old wood splintered poles, did not survive in high winds. There was plenty of warning. It doesn't look like the proper precautions were put into place. And it is a fact that Hawaiian Electric was investing in renewables. And life being a zero-sum game, attention being a zero-sum game, what you give to A, you deprive from B. What you give to renewables, you deprive from basic competence and maintenance. Further forwarding their status as the villain in this story, the Washington Post reports Hawaiian Electric got in there and took away those downed poles before the ATF and investigators could fully figure out what happened and what started the fire. Hawaiian Electric didn't cut off power to the town that day when power went out at the residential level. I don't know, I guess that happened from a substation, but big power was still coming into town. And power came into town, I've been told by people who know, from several different ways, not just one way. So you could have power coming in one way and out in another way. So you got live wires on the ground, and that's the first immediate concern. Public Works and Maui Police told, don't let people drive over that, because of course that would be incredibly dangerous. In retrospect, I should have cut those wires, should have cut that power, should have let people out of town, not wave them down to Front Street. Secondarily, no one knew how quickly this would rip through town. I've seen Maui Fire say, fire in 60 to 80 mile an hour winds in Lahaina, all sing- basically single wall construction would rip through town like it was going through a grass field. It was leaping from house to house a minute at a time. A minute at a time. And it basically ran through town in 45 minutes to an hour. The first fire started at 6 a.m. that morning. It was contained. That doesn't mean put out. It flares up later in the day. By 3.45, roughly, that fire is now going. And by 5 p.m., 5.30 p.m., people are in the water. Having already been shuttled down to Front Street, met a traffic jam, abandoned their cars, some died in their cars, some burned in their home. Mistakes, clearly in retrospect. Incompetence, in many ways through management, passing down orders. Misplaced priorities, focus on climate change and renewables. Incompetence in doing your basic functions. Making sure your basic job is done to the highest quality. Do we have the best power lines up, the best poles? Have we cleared all the underbrush? You couldn't talk about, perhaps, and I'm sure that they will. The county of Maui's already sued Hawaiian Electric. Criminal incompetence. But there's no evidence of any conspiracy to try to kill an entire town of people and burn it down. I know people want to believe these things. They want to believe it's more complicated. They want to believe because you find that obvious bad guy. Maybe you can reexert control. You can put your hand back on the handrail of sanity. How could something so awful be the product of incompetence and misplaced priorities and chaos? But I've been there, man. I've talked to the people there that day. One problem came up. Another problem started a minute later. People focused on the wrong problems. Then there's the water. There's been a talk about the equity guy, Kaleo Manuel, wouldn't release water. I know a great deal about this story now. Here's how this story goes. West Maui Land is a private water distributor and land developer. Much of the water around Lahaina is uh, 
leased or controlled to private enterprises. Those private enterprises, by the way, I've told you about Kimo Clark, the guy I've gotten to know in his excavation business. They dove in. West Maui Land, for example, dove into that fire that day, diverted all their trucks, all their water trucks to fighting that fire. Everyone on the front lines sacrificing while their homes burned. Kaleo Manuel did deprive a water reservoir of water because he said, you got to check with this taro farmer downstream. Native Hawaiian, capital L local, believe, have an ideology, what some tell me is a very vocal minority, that water should flow freely in the stream. It shouldn't be diverted to irrigation, to plantations, to farming, to industrial farming, to residential neighborhoods, to reservoirs. It should flow freely in the stream. And I guess small farmers tap into it for their taro. If he had gotten back and he did not, which I do believe is negligence, I do believe is criminal negligence, if Kaleo Manuel had gotten back and said, yes, you can fill up the reservoir, here's the truth, probably wouldn't stop the fire. That reservoir would have primarily been a source for helicopters to go dip in water and put it out in town. Didn't have pipelines run into the fire hoses. That was a different water system, which what I've been told happens there is why the water turned off that day is you had home after home burning all the way to its foundation, busting pipes. What that means is you lose water pressure in the system down from that point. So if you're tagged into the system after home, after home, after home, 2,200 homes burned in Lahaina. You lose pressure, you lose water. The helicopters couldn't have flown that day and dipped out of the reservoir with those 80-mile-an-hour winds. Do you see what I'm getting at? Oh, well, yes, they made huge mistakes in shutting down the media that day. Huge. And the days after, FEMA jumped in there and absolutely shut down access to West Maui. And that type of shutdown, that type of uh, censorship, it feeds conspiracy. What I'm telling you is, I don't know that there's anyone more plugged in on this story than me, better sources in all aspects of Maui, plugged in to all channels of first responders, relief efforts, community members, And there isn't evidence of a conspiracy and a villain. There isn't evidence of an obvious, singular bad guy. But there is evidence everywhere. Everywhere of good guys. And I know that lands without a thud for too many. Bad guys give us purpose. Because we are the good guys. All I can tell you is this has been transformative for me in my life because I just know what we can do, what people do, what you can do. You say yes, you dive in, and it compounds, and more comes at you, and life comes at you more, and more opportunities are presented to you, and you're asked to do more, and you can. The more you do, the more comes at you, and the more comes at you, the more that you can do. It's like that speech given by Admiral William McRaven at the University of Texas, make your bed. First thing, make your bed. Wake up every day with that bit of productivity, and I promise you it compounds throughout the day. In times of crisis, we're the good guys, and I've seen it, and it's amazing. It's incredible. It truly is incredible. And it is true purpose. It truly is. Screaming on the internet, looking for villains. I'm not telling you we don't search for accountability. I don't, I'm not telling you don't, we don't point out the problems in society. We do. But if you stop there, You can either get sucked down into for a vortex 
Well, you know who you are at the end of that vortex, at the end of that conspiracy, at the end of that search for a bad guy? You're something you don't want to be. You're a victim. But if you acknowledge that, if you seek accountability, and then you keep moving forward, then you can become the good guy. Then you reassert control. Then you're not a victim of your circumstances. Then you improve the world around you. And I've seen it. I've seen it in Hawaiian homes. I've seen it with Kimo Clark and Truex Excavation. I've seen it with Pastor Sean in Wailuku. I've seen it in the firefighters that day who watched their homes, homes burned, trapped in their fire engines because they're draped with power lines all over them. They can't get out, thinking they're about to be cooked until they're saved at the last moment by a Maui PD SUV that rolls up. I've seen it. I've seen it. You've seen it. Just look around. It's in your community. It's at your church. It's your pastor. It's your fireman. It's there. And we don't ever see it until we need it. It's there. Maui. Grayson County, Texas. Dallas County, Texas. New York, New York. It's full Everywhere you look, it's full of good guys. We'll be right back with more of the Will Kane Podcast. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Story number one, the look of defiance, Donald Trump's mugshot. Late last week, right after the Republican presidential primary debate, Donald Trump turned himself in in Fulton County, Georgia, on his fourth indictment, and this time being the first time he was booked with a mugshot. Unnecessary, of course, in a political act, as all of this is. Man, I was looking at a trial schedule for Donald Trump through these four criminal trials, plus, I believe it's two civil trials as well being sued. He is scheduled to be in court every month from now through the election. I mean, all consuming to his benefit, Donald Trump isn't a politician that has to stop at every Dairy Queen and go to every state, shake every county commissioner's hand. He can give a rally and reach as many people as another Republican presidential candidate. Because I don't know how you would do that. I don't know how you would politic while being in court every month if you were not Donald Trump. But it's exhausting, man. Every month. That mugshot, by the way, has apparently raised something north of $7 million for Donald Trump. I think it raised $4 million in one day by putting it on T-shirts and mugs. You can go out there and you can buy merch with the mugshot of Donald Trump. And, you know, I think there's two different types of mugshots as you kind of just scroll through famous celebrity mugshots. There's the sloppy one, you know, the embarrassing mugshot. That's Tiger Woods. Go look it up. That's Bill Cosby. And then there's the mugshot of infamy, the glamour shot. The mugshot that seems to have a message. And more often than not, that message is one of rebellion. More often than not, that message is defiance. Let me give you some examples. Mostly rock stars. 
Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, a young Frank Sinatra, by the way, has one heck of a mugshot. And all this got me in trouble because I said it on The Five last week, I don't care. I don't think it's wrong. Martin Luther King. Am I comparing Donald Trump to Martin Luther King? Well, I'm comparing them insofar as you compare the colors um, purple and orange. Is it a comparison if I say they're both colors? MLK's mugshot and Donald Trump's mugshot both represent defiance, and specifically defiance against a system. If your power of analogy is lacking, all you'll hear is, Will Cain compares Martin Luther King Jr. to Donald Trump. Martin Luther King Jr. got arrested for defiance of a system, and he was righteous. Donald Trump was arrested clearly by a weaponized system of the Department of Justice. And he defies. If there's any question about the weaponization of the DOJ, let me just take a moment, a parenthetical here, and tell you yet another example. Elon Musk announced later this week, late last week, that he's been sued by the Department of Justice for hiring practices at SpaceX. The charge is that he had limited his hiring pool to American citizens, that he wasn't properly considering asylees and refugees, non-citizens, for employment at SpaceX. First of all, that's creative and new. That there is a protected class of employment, non-citizens, that they're protected by the 14th Amendment? Sequel protection clause? Oh, race, gender, these are protected classes. Citizenship? A protected class? And to protect those who aren't from America? Okay, but see, that's not even where it gets weirder. There's also a law, Elon Musk points out, that says if you work in a defense industry type of business, which includes rockets, high technology... You are not to hire foreign nationals. Why? Potential security breach. You can't hire non-citizens. So he's in a catch-22. Damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Of course, under the new creative, artistic vision of the weaponization of the DOJ. The other one was black and white law. No one had ever seen it applied in this way. But the DOJ's also creative in launching their bombs. Oh, by the way, this is also pointed out. You know who limits their employment pool to U.S. citizens? Can't be an asylee or a refugee or a non-citizen to apply for employment at the DOJ. So there's no question the DOJ weaponizes the justice system. Did you see, by the way, Donald Trump's, I think it's self-reported stats? 6'3", 215. You know who's about 6'3", 218? Former... Arizona Cardinal Hall of Fame wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald. It's about the physique of an NFL wide receiver. What I don't, I don't care. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal to many in the media. We used to have fun with this on ESPN. Remember when Donald Trump's um, physical came out? Like the greatest specimen on earth, according to his doctor, right? We used to on ESPN have a little uh, teases and bumps into the radio show like, I can't remember what we said. Was it Donald Trump or, for example, Larry Fitzgerald? Who has the faster 40? Donald Trump, 6'3", 215. But there should be no question this whole thing is politically motivated, that this whole thing is a weaponized justice system. It absolutely is. It absolutely reveals. And the support for that mugshot absolutely reveals a dedicated base. But remember when I said it's going to be so exhausting, that trial schedule? I have to tell you, I do think, and I don't even know where this leads us, but I do think it's true 
that there is fatigue. I think about the casual observer a lot. Many of you may be casual observers of politics or news. I think about the casual observer a lot. I don't expect them to be as political or as plugged in as someone like me. So I think about what washes over them. And often what washes over an individual is a sense, right? A feeling. I don't blame me. I do it. You do it. We all do it. Hey, what do you think about X? Oh, I have a feeling about that, but I'm not totally read in. I saw the headline. It's not how we should make decisions, but it just is. I think about the casual observer, and I think trial after trial, indictment after indictment, mugshot, I don't know in the end whether or not that truly motivates a base, truly reveals something that I think is true, a weaponized justice system, a politicized federal government. I don't know that that breaks through to the casual observer more than does the fatigue of this constant story about Trump. Now, how does that play? I don't know. I've had friends say to me, Donald Trump's not electable in a general election. And I don't agree. I think that's wrong. Now, here's why I think it's wrong. Because that same fatigue that I think is going to affect the casual observer also affects the casual observer when it comes to Joe Biden. Look, there's the stories like this weekend on Fox News Brian Kilman had an interview with Victor Shokin, the fired Ukrainian prosecutor at the behest of Joe Biden because he was looking into Burisma, the company where Hunter Biden sat on the board. That story's not going away. It's going to keep coming. More depositions, more testimony, more Devin Archers, Eric Schwerin, more people close to Hunter, and more ties back to Joe Biden. And I do think that will create some level of fatigue for the casual observer for Joe Biden. But that's not all. I think incompetence. I think his age. I think his senility. I think his frailty. And I think unforgivable moments like no comment on Maui is going to create, has already created, an incredible, an incredible amount of fatigue for Joe Biden. In that environment, I do think that Donald Trump can win a general election for president of the United States. But I just think, as much as so many are outraged or angered, I think a greater amount of people right now are fatigued on where we are and where we're going with our system of politics. I am very philosophical. I'm very ideological, right? I admit that. I try to be practical, but I believe in certain ideals to my core. I will tell you, and it occurred to me during the Republican presidential primary debate, and I know that it affects me on a lot of levels right now, but in the wake of Maui, it did occur to me, hey, we need to get somebody in charge who is highly competent. I don't think somebody needs to organize our daily lives, but the power of the presidency is great. It's the power to launch wars. To put a bigger fingerprint on reorganizing our lives than any other single individual. And we need to focus on competency. Nikki Haley said something. She's running for president this past weekend. I thought this was an important point to share. Nikki Haley said the following, I quote, My concern is we cannot have Kamala Harris as president. We can't chance this. 
We have to make sure that we have a new generational leader that's going to bring in not only Republicans, but we're going to pull back the independents. We're going to bring back in the suburban women. We're going to bring in Hispanics. We're going to bring in the Asian community. We have to make sure we win this because the thought of Kamala Harris being president should send a chill up every American spine. She's absolutely correct about the thought of Kamala Harris. Now, I don't think that's an argument to vote for Nikki Haley. You can come to that conclusion on your own. For me, that's not compelling to vote for Nikki Haley. And I still want a wrecking ball in a lot of ways to tear down this system. I still want sodium pentothal for the entire country. Truth serum, which Donald Trump so often proved to be. A wrecking ball and an um, uh, exposure, ripping off the masks, drinking down the truth serum. How did you really feel? What do you really like? system. I still want that truth serum and that wrecking ball in so many ways. But I will say, man, right now, I want good guys. I want a positive vision. I want competency. But I will not sacrifice my principle. I will not sacrifice the truth. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. Story number two. Embrace the hate, say the Texas Longhorns. The University of Texas is always hated, as is the Dallas Cowboys, and that's okay. To be loved or to be hated, as long as they feel. And it's because the University of Texas has such a high estimation of itself. We, I, have such a high estimation. We should be like Georgia. We should be like Alabama. We have this recruiting base. We have this donor base. We have these foundations, we have these facilities, we have the best-looking logo in college football. We should be, but we aren't. And with this being the last year of the University of Texas in the Big 12, everyone, everyone, if they didn't already, hates Texas. Oh, this is going to be a terrible season. Texas should win the Big 12. All my favorite sites are almost in unison saying 10 and 2. 10 wins, 2 losses, win the Big 12. Maybe college football playoffs. But they're going to have to beat the refs, opposing crowds, everybody. Because they hate Texas for leaving the Big 12. Oklahoma as well. Be careful. We're not getting a we all of a sudden together, OU and Texas. We're not getting a single call in Lubbock, in Fort Worth, in Manhattan, Kansas. They hate us for leaving the Big 12. So the University of Texas has made that sort of their theme of the season, and they put T-shirts on it. Embrace the hate. And guess what? Of course. That has led to offense. The Internet does what it does immediately. X did what it does immediately. Said, how could Texas in this environment, how could somebody in charge actually... Put this on a t-shirt. Embrace this slogan. Embrace the hate. Because in their estimation, because in their world, there is only one type of hate. It's really the hate that they embody. Really the hate that they exude. Racism. There is no hate outside of race in modern day America. Remember that story I told you in the last segment about Nikki Haley saying we need somebody competent and we need to fear 
the presidency of Kamala Harris. That drew the fire of people like Jamel Hill, who live on tragedy and feed racism into our system, force us to continue to live in the past by seeing the world through the prism of skin color. Said Nikki Haley was racist. Because, of course, Kamala Harris couldn't just be incompetent. She has to be black. Which is the defining characteristic on her qualifications for presidency. I think everybody in America can see the disqualifying or qualifying characteristic has nothing to do with her skin. It has to do with what's banging between her ears. It has to do with her competency. And please don't act like that's grabbed out of thin air. Because the evidence is piled this high on any table. No one wants President Kamala Harris. But those same types of people jump in. This is an anonymous person on X, but whatever. I'm guessing this is sports-related. Embrace the hate. But to anyone not in on that, it appears to be a white supremacist message. Because not only is hate just about race, hate is about white supremacist rate. There's no other kind of hate. You don't hate your neighbor. You don't hate your spouse, I guess. Some of you have those unfortunate relationships. You don't hate your enemy. You only hate based upon race. Damn, we've turned into simpletons. Here's another one. Now what? In There's no black people who work here? Come on, UT. The flagship University of Texas. Let's do better. <laughs> Here, but it's not just anonymous users. Listen to this. The school's chapter of the American Association of University Professors. Okay. Sounds official. Said exactly who at UT Austin authorized this literally hateful use of the Longhorn brand. Asking... For all faculty working to instill a positive learning community in our classes and on campus, surely there are better ways to show UT pride. Let me explain to you something about college football. It's filled with hate. It's in fight songs. A&M hates UT. UT hates A&M. OU hates UT. UT hates OU. Texas Tech hates UT. Texas Tech, well, UT doesn't care about Texas Tech. Sorry. Alabama hates Auburn. Oklahoma State hates OU. This is what it is. It's not friendly. You know, go to the same barbecue rivalries. We're not on the verge of violence. It's not hate down to your soul. It's quarantine tribalism. It's cathartic. Okay? And that's what's going on with Embrace the Hate the University of Texas. Go, I love, I, I have all the internet memes and sayings, the new ones. The one I like is this one. Go touch grass. It says so much. Go touch grass, right? Reconnect with the real world. Touch something real. On your feet would be good, too. Go touch grass. Get off the internet. Okay? In your white supremacist bubble of race hatred on online media, social media, go touch grass. There's all kinds of hate, including the healthy hate of college football. Story number three. The death penalty about to be about nitrogen, inhalation, what it needs to be about is honesty and vengeance. A heavy one. To finish us off here today on the Will Kane podcast, I'll make you a deal. Let's talk about the death penalty, and I'll finish with Trey Lance. Heavy. And then a lotto ticket. The state of Alabama is looking at using nitrogen hypoxia. By forcing an inmate to breathe only nitrogen 
deprives them of oxygen and kills them. The air inhaled by people includes 78% nitrogen, but is harmless when inhaled with oxygen. So we, what we're breathing, you and me right now, the breath you're taking in your car or on your run or wherever you are right now is 78% nitrogen, but it's accompanied by oxygen. If you take the oxygen out, you get nitrogen hypoxia. You die. You die. Apparently, Alabama authorized nitrogen hypoxia in 2018 amidst a shortage of uh, drugs that are used in lethal injections. Uh, huge constitutional fights for you know right-to-life advocates who don't believe in the death penalty. Ta- I know this story very well. Tangling up a lot of these injections, saying they're cruel and unusual, then depriving supply. And a lot of states can't even do the death penalty because they're, uh, they, don't have, they don't have the chemicals necessary. So it looks like Alabama, and I had not heard this, had moved to nitrogen. So has Oklahoma and Mississippi have authorized nitrogen hypoxia as an execution method, but none of them have used it until now. Alabama says it will execute Kenneth Eugene Smith by nitrogen hypoxia. Who's Kenneth Eugene Smith? I think it's important to know. He was arrested and convicted in a murder-for-hire plot with a pastor to kill his wife. The victim's husband was a pastor at the Church of Christ, Charles Sinnott. He killed himself when the investigation began to look into him as a possible suspect, according to court documents. But Kenneth Eugene Smith and another man were each paid $1,000 to kill Sinnott on behalf of her husband. who was in huge debt and wanted to collect the insurance money. So Elizabeth Sennett was found dead in her home. She shared with her husband. Her husband, Charles Sennett, paid these two dudes to kill her. Charles Sennett later killed himself. They did. They killed her. And Kenneth Eugene Smith received the death penalty. The other inmate was executed in 2010. Now, here's the story about this nitrogen method. Proponents of the new execution method have claimed it would be painless Others say it's a form of human experimentation. It's expected to launch a whole new field of legal battles on constitutionality. I'm sure under the fight of cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, Here's what I say about the death penalty. The death penalty isn't for rehabilitation, obviously. It's not great, great evidence about deterrence, but I, I think it does deter. I actually do. But it's a lot about vengeance, and vengeance is actually a societal, it's not an improper societal goal. It's not an improper outcome of the justice system. Vengeance. And in that mind, I think the best way for both the executed and the executor, which is you and me, to be clear, when we vote, when we pay taxes, we are the society that embraces the death penalty. And as long as we are, and I am, in support of the death penalty, I think we can be honest that we are exacting vengeance on behalf of society. And we need to be honest about that and how it's done. I think lethal injection is as much for us as it is for the inmate. So it looks like they go to sleep peacefully to absolve our conscience so that we feel better about what we have done. I personally think we should use the firing squad. I think a firing squad is humane and honest. You can visually and viscerally see the consequences of your actions. And when we do something like this as a society, I don't take it lightly. I don't throw around vengeance or the belief in the death penalty lightly. So we should know the cost, the toll, on our own psyches, on our own souls, of what we're doing. 
You know? That's what we owe to ourselves, that level of honesty. Don't tuck it away in quiet corners. Don't pretend someone's just going to sleep. How about honesty about our vengeance? The Dallas Cowboys, to end on a high note with a lotto ticket, made a trade on Friday for San Francisco 49ers quarterback Trey Lance. Trey Lance, who couldn't break first or second string with the Niners, is now third string for the Dallas Cowboys. He was, if you'll remember, I believe the third pick in the NFL draft, third quarterback after um, Zach Wilson. You can do it, Will. Who was the first quarterback taken in that draft? The Zach Wilson draft. I can do it. I'm like Rick Perry. I can't remember the third branch of government that I would shut down. Give me a minute. Let me keep talking and see if I can come back. Trey Lance was also a guy that the San Francisco 49ers traded three first-round draft picks to get. And now they trade him away for a fourth-round draft pick to the Dallas Cowboys. My producer just texted me in the middle of this segment to tell me the name of the quarterback, and I did not want that to happen. I wanted to do it on my own. I did not want the assistance, and now I have to be honest with the audience so they can exact their vengeance on the fact that I couldn't remember the name Trevor Lawrence. Stop it, James. Stop it, Patrick. I would have gotten it. Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson. This is a perfect lotto ticket for the Dallas Cowboys. It's not a threat to Dak Prescott. Get out of here. I'm sure that will lead Craig Carton and Colin Coward shows tomorrow. Have you ever seen a bigger catnip than Dak Prescott for the national media? It's all negative. Man, they must see a real rating spike. I know they do. I've been behind that curtain. Got to keep talking about Dak and the Dallas Cowboys. It's not a threat to Dak Prescott. But it's a lotto ticket. Down the road, if they can rehabilitate a guy who has had that much talent to go that high in the first round to commit that many draft picks by the San Francisco 49ers and Kyle Shanahan, no less, that's worth a lotto ticket. That's worth rehabilitation. At worst, you trade him away after he gets to show something on the field. At best, I guess, he's so good, he pushes out the door Dak Prescott. Which I would never want and don't believe will happen. But, you know how good I think Dak Prescott is. I get your tweets, I see all your messages, you think I highly overrate him. Well, if I think he's that good, how good would Trey Lance have to be to beat out Dak Prescott? Win-win, home run, lotto ticket for the Dallas Cowboys. That's going to do it for me today here on the Will Kane Podcast. I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.